Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. But we are continuing a message series together today that was really rudely interrupted two weeks ago by this COVID outbreak that we experienced. I mean, we had plans for where this series was going and had to put everything on hiatus and adjust all the schedule. But this series is called Renewed Vision. And in this series, we've been renewing and reaffirming and re-envisioning, re-examining our mission as a church. But there's a... There's a secret, kind of a, you know, not very closely guarded secret about church mission, and that is that every church that honors the name of Jesus has the same mission. Like we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. We, we may have our own jargon, our own vocabulary, our own wording that we use to describe what it is that God's called us to do. But every Christian church has the same mission. And the mission of the Christian church is to follow Jesus together. That's what we're doing. That's the reason that we're assembled, the reason that we're organized like this, the reason that we're gathered. The whole point of us being connected to one another and not just, you know, being doing our Christian thing out there on our own. The whole point of us being connected is because we have been called and invited to follow Jesus together. We are in existence so that together we can do what the living Jesus said and so that together we can do what the living Jesus continues to say. And so three weeks ago, the last time we were together in person, I reminded those of you who have been here at Heritage for a while about a sermon series that I preached back in the fall of 2019 called Text Messages. Some of you would remember this as the bookcase series. I had these bookcases up here on stage with me to remind us about some of the distinctions and the divisions between the different sections of the books of the Bible. And that series that we listened to way back then, and I even gave you this link and encourage you to go and check it out again. That series was a series about the Bible, but it wasn't exactly about the content of the Bible. Like most of the sermons we're used to, this one was not a, a sermon about a passage out of the Bible. This was a broader series about the way that we approach the Bible. It was about the way that we engage this text that we have, the way that we work with this library of ancient books and writings that's been handed down to us. And I'd be thrilled if you'd go back and listen to that series at some point. You can snap a picture of that and find it on the website and go and listen to the text messages series. But just in case you're not gonna, just in case you don't have time and you're not going to get around to that, I'm going to do you a favor right now and just give you the hyper-condensed version of that entire five-week series in one sentence. And those of you who sat through it the first time are thinking, wait, Brock, can, you could have said that in one sentence that whole time, you know? I'm thinking, yeah, I could have, but, you know, thanks for sitting through it like you did. But here's the hyper-condensed version of the entire five-week message series that we did in 2019 that's so important for the life of our church. And the, the condensed version goes like this. It says, the Bible is a gift from God delivered through God's people from long ago 
and meant to help everyone who reads it to discover, learn to trust, and fall in love with Jesus, all right? This is the description that most closely matches our understanding of the nature and the purpose of the Bible. This library of books is a gift from God that the people of God helped God to deliver to us long ago and to hand down to us so that anybody who reads these books would have a great opportunity, a head start to be able to discover Jesus and learn to trust Jesus and fall in love with Jesus. And my point of all of that is saying this library of books is all about Jesus. This entire thing, it's all about Jesus. Now, sure, there's some different sections of it. And, and the first part of the Bible is really about preparing the way for Jesus and describing the world's need for Jesus. And then there's this middle section that talks about the arrival and the ministry of Jesus. And then there's the last part of the Bible that talks about the world changing significance and the lasting impact of Jesus for the first hundred years or so after Jesus's life and ministry. But all all of this library is about Jesus. The whole thing is meant to point us to Jesus. That's what the Bible exists for. And the reason that it's so beautiful, the thing that makes it so incredible for us is that Jesus, who is our focus, Jesus is the one who is actually able to fix the things that are broken in this world. That's what Jesus does. Jesus changes everything. Jesus fixes what's broken. Jesus mends what's injured. Jesus provides hope for those who are hopeless. Jesus provides freedom for people who are captive. Jesus has an ongoing mission in the world. This is a progressive and increasingly visible reality as the kingdom of God is making inroads in the world around us. And Jesus continues to make an impact on families, and churches, and neighborhoods, and cities, and states, and nations, and Jesus is fixing the world. Jesus is in the process of doing all of the supernatural work of repairing this broken world. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes the people of Jesus lag behind in recognizing what Jesus is up to. Sometimes the people who love Jesus and are trying to follow Jesus and are convinced that Jesus is the hope of the world, sometimes we, as the people of Jesus, lag behind in recognizing what it is that Jesus is trying to repair. And so, for two weeks, today and next Sunday, we are going to talk about one of the great themes of the Bible that it's possible we have missed noticing in our regular flat reading of the Bible. It's a great theme that we can find throughout this entire library of books because we're talking about a movement of God that has been building to a crescendo for millennia. This is a movement that God has been inviting us to join. But sometimes the people of God lag behind. Sometimes because of our cultural history, sometimes because of our flat reading 
or improper reading of the New Testament, sometimes we've missed out on the vision that God has been casting for us. Church family, it is time for us to talk about God's vision for how males and females relate to one another and serve together in the church. Now, it's been almost three years since I stood on this stage and made an announcement and told our church that our leadership team, our elders and our ministry staff and all of the spouses of those people, that our leadership team was beginning a concentrated study of Scripture in order to discern God's intention for gender roles and relationships in the church. And, and, and that team began that study in earnest almost immediately after we made that announcement to the church in March 2019. And a little bit later that year, we created a page on our website and distributed some helpful study resources and made those available to you. They're still out there. We'd be thrilled for you if you haven't looked at them yet to go and digest some of those materials and get caught up so that we could have this conversation together. And we made all of those resources available and then COVID happened. And it kind of shut down our conversation. And in the last three years, a lot of things have happened in the world and a lot of things have happened in our congregation and the COVID pandemic delayed this conversation longer than we'd like, but we need to talk about what God is doing and what God has been doing for millennia and this vision and this movement that God is up to. But it's important as we start the conversation to kind of acknowledge that we're all coming to this conversation from different places. And, and the reality is that if you're a guest here today, you might feel like you're listening in on an insider conversation or like you've walked in on some kind of family discussion that doesn't involve you, but I want you to know that nothing could be further from the truth. It's not true because I'm, I'm thrilled you're here because I think this, this movement of God is one of the most exciting things about the good news that God has to share with us. I think this movement of God we're talking about is an exciting embodiment of the good news that God has for the whole world. And so if you're new here, welcome. We want you to be a part of this conversation. And some of you, you're not new here, but you had no idea that this was a topic of conversation that needed to be discussed. It's possible that maybe you've never given this any thought or you weren't aware that there was any background material that needed to be considered. And I, my hope is that this conversation is going to enlighten you to some of the contents of scripture that maybe you haven't studied or experienced before. But at the same time, there's some people in this room who have been aware of this question for a long time. There's some people here who have settled this question in their own heart and through their own study a long time ago. And, and then there are others who have had lingering questions or conflicted feelings about God's vision and the church's practice in this regard. And so we're all coming to this conversation from different places. But I want to remind you that we have nothing to fear from digging again into the written word of God. We have nothing to fear from looking again at the written word that God and God's people have handed down as a gift to us so that we might have faith in Jesus. We have nothing to fear from re-examining the truth of God's teaching. And over these two Sundays, today and next Sunday, I'm going to give you an overview of the journey that all of our elders and ministers and their spouses traveled together during the course of our study.
You know, it's likely that this topic would not be a blip on the radar. It wouldn't even be a point of debate were it not for two obscure passages that are buried in two of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And we're going to dissect those two passages more in depth and in greater detail next Sunday. But for now, it's enough to get everybody up to speed and caught up. It's enough to say that there are two passages, one in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and one in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul writes an instruction that says women should be silent and subordinate in the church, in the meetings of the church. And regardless of how that strikes you, regardless of what thoughts that brings to mind for you or what feelings that wells up inside of you, regardless of how that strikes your sensibilities, there's been this ongoing debate in the church for hundreds of years, a couple of thousands of years almost, about whether Paul's instructions were meant to dictate church life for all time or whether Paul might have been addressing some unique situation that was happening in the churches that he was writing to. Now, I'll be honest and say, I know a lot of churches and I don't know any churches that follow Paul's prohibition entirely. I don't know anybody, any church that's actually obeying these instructions. The command says that women should be silent in the churches. And I got to tell you how thankful I am that 10 minutes ago, Allie and Pam standing up here were not silent as they were leading us in worship. And what a gift it was to us that we got a chance to participate in that moment of focus on Jesus together because of their service to us. I, I don't know of any churches who are actually practicing this prohibition. Every church I know encourages women to sing and participate in other verbal ways in their services. But there's a lot of churches, including this one, that for, for years have drifted along in some sort of vague compliance with those verses. And churches like this one have used either stated or unstated policies to apply some degree of restriction as to how much women were invited to participate in leading and serving in our gatherings together. And those decisions and those policies that churches have just drifted along with for years, they're challenged by the presence of other biblical passages that seem to indicate that women in the first century church were serving and leading openly in ways that sometimes our churches don't invite women to serve and lead. And so as we enter into this conversation, everybody has to admit, no matter which perspective you're coming from, whether this is your first time to think about this or you've thought about it for a long time, everybody has to acknowledge and understand that this, this debate, this topic is not as clear as anybody would like it to be. It's, it's muddier, murkier than anybody would prefer. And so if we read the New Testament like it's an instruction manual for the church, then those restrictions we find in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 that say women should be silent and subservient in the church, those seem like pretty clear-cut commands, whether we like them or not. The problem is, when we treat the New, Test New Testament like an instruction manual, 
when we assume that the letters Paul wrote to the first century church include the same content that he would have written to the 21st century church, the heritage church in 2022, we got to admit there's some things in there, some instructions from Paul, some commands that he wrote that we're just not going to do. We're not willing to do them. We're not willing to do them. It would violate our conscience. It would violate our comfort. There are some commands in there that we are simply unwilling to follow because of the cultural and historical distance from that time to our time. And because over the course of that time, the Holy Spirit has guided us into new and better readings of the scripture. I say that because these same New Testament letters, these very same ancient documents that we're talking about have been used by churches and by Christians over the years to do things and to influence and support causes that we would never ever support. Within the last 200 years, Christians and churches have used these letters of Paul to defend practices like slavery and segregation and to argue that those practices were biblical. And in the strictest sense of the word, they are. Slavery and segregation are biblical. But the Spirit's teaching us a better way to understand the Scripture the Spirit's teaching us a better way to understand what those texts were doing 2,000 years ago and what those texts are doing today. And we would never, we would never stand on this stage or we would never allow anybody to teach from this stage and, see, and preach a message in support of slavery or segregation because we know that doesn't reflect the heart of our Lord. And so there's this tension there's this tension because everybody involved in this conversation, all the leaders in our church, in fact, all the members of our church, want to be the people who honor and respect and appreciate the importance of this gift that we have. I mean, we want to honor the gift of Scripture, this Bible that was handed down by God through the people of God so that we could discover and learn to trust and fall in love with Jesus, right? Like, we, this is important to us. This is really valuable. And that hasn't changed it's still important to us, but we have to admit, we have to admit that these scriptures, when they're applied without nuance and when they're applied without discernment, have been used for evil and they've been used for divisiveness and they've been used in ways that are oppo opposed to the cause of Jesus Christ. And so in our study together, when our leadership team studied this topic together, we went searching and asking ourselves, what does the heart of God tell us? Let's look and find what does the heart of God tell us about this topic? And as we went on this journey together, our search took us all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And Genesis is the book that begins with these two back-to-back -back poetic accounts of the creation of the world and the creation of humanity. And when we went back to those two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, the very first two chapters in the Bible, and we read about the world as God designed it, we discovered that man and woman in the very beginning experienced equality before God. 
Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created humanity, plural, in God's own image. In the divine image, God created not him, them. In the divine image of God, male and female, God created them. And so there was no hierarchy. There was no priority. Neither of the genders was created more like God than the other gender because man and woman were created as co-image bearers of God. And it's also notable that man and woman together were both given a commission, both given an assignment to exercise dominion over the earth. God said to them, be fertile and multiply and fill the earth and master it and take charge of the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and everything crawling on the ground. They were given this job, this purpose, this cause that they were to follow under God's direction to take dominion over the earth and to take care of the earth and to use the earth the way that they needed to use it, but they were not charged with exercising dominion over one another. They were partners. And in the Genesis 2 account, it's notable that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the story explains that God created the woman as a helper and a partner for the man. And it's, it's possible that because of our own lenses, our own experiences and our own assumptions, that we might read the word helper, in Hebrew it's ezer, and we might read that word and assume that it implies a subordinate role. Because in our world, we're used to seeing relationships at work. We're used to seeing a, a, a relationship out in our you know, corporate world or in our schools where maybe there's a teacher and also a teacher's aide, a teacher's helper. And the teacher's aide may not have the same, the same educational qualifications and may not get the same pay because they're a helper and they serve the needs of the teacher. But throughout the Old Testament, including in places like Deuteronomy 33 and lots of other verses in the New Testament, that same Hebrew word, Ezer, is used to describe God being a helper to humans. Deuteronomy 33, 29, blessed are you, Israel, it says, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and your Ezer. Now, none of us read that and think that God is subordinate to the people of Israel. None of us read that and think that God is lower than the people of Israel. We think of that as a partnership that God is helping to achieve the, the purposes and the needs and satisfy the needs of Israel. And so it seems logical that this Hebrew word for helper, Ezer, it can't imply subordination because we know God's not subordinate to humanity. And so when we do this dive into Genesis 1 and 2, we find that in God's created order, man and woman experience no hierarchy between them. They were created equally by God for a partnership, commissioned with a purpose. And then something happened in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, this major event, this turning point in the narrative of the scripture happened and it disrupted the relationship between the man and the woman and God, their creator. But it also disrupted the relation, the horizontal relationship between the man and the woman. 
You see, in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the equation, and the man and the woman both ate from the tree from which God had told them not to eat, and the decision to take matters into their own hands had consequences for them. Their decision to follow the impulse that said God doesn't care for us and is not giving us the best. God's holding back from us something that we would want. God doesn't have our best interest in mind. Their mistrust of God and their disobedience had consequences for them. And the consequence included the development of attention between them. It brought on a new struggle for control over one another. God told the woman in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Some translations say you will desire to control your husband because th this is not talking about your desire being a romantic, intimate desire between a husband and wife. This is talking about a desire to control, a desire to rule. You see, the fall of humanity, as we call it, this event in Genesis chapter 3, it led to a human mistrust of other people and a desire for power and dominance, a desire to try to gain control wherever we could get it. And fallen people are constantly struggling for control, however they can grasp it. And so this power imbalance, this battle for dominance and this pervasive control that men have physically been able to exercise over women in cultures around the globe and throughout history. It's the result of the curse. It's the consequence of not trusting our God. The result of the curse that humanity brought upon itself as a result of sin. This was not the arrangement that God intended. This was not the relationship between people that God designed. This was a result of a failure to trust God. And that's bad news. It's bad news that changed the course of human history, but the good news, in fact, the best news ever, is that from that day forward, God decided, God decided to do whatever was required to reverse the curse that humans had brought upon themselves. After Genesis chapter 3, we get a few more chapters. In fact, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis tell more of that origin story and describe how things went from bad to worse over the course of just a few generations. But then in chapter 12, God gets right to work on that reverse the curse project and the entire rest of the scripture. The entire rest of this library is about that project, the reverse the curse project, where God decided that he would do whatever it took to restore the brokenness that had been created by sin. And all along the way, all along the way throughout the, throughout the project, throughout history, just as God predicted, men took charge and men ruled over women and men subjugated women and domineered women. And, and in the midst of that, God kept elevating women. And God kept writing women into the story anyway. And so we read through the rest of Genesis and we see moments where God gave positions of honor to women like Sarah and Hagar. And he saw Hagar out on the road 
desperate and lost and afraid. And he gave her a future. And she said, you're the God that sees me. Nobody else sees me, but you're the one that sees me. And in Exodus, it's not just the Moses show the entire time. Miriam, his sister shows up and Exodus calls her a prophet of God, a prophet of God and a worship leader who led songs of praise to celebrate God saving the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. And you work your way further into scripture and you get to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and God's issuing the laws that are going to govern the Israelites' civil relationships and issuing the laws that are going to govern their, their religious expression. And God chose, God wrote in laws that would protect the women. God wrote in laws that would defend the widows. God made sure to include laws that would protect women who had been discarded through divorce and women who had no resources and women who had no social standing. It was God who made sure that the law decreed that women could own property because there was this family where the dad passed away and he had five daughters and no sons to pass his land down to. And God said, those women, they get that land. Nobody else ever thought women could own property. That wasn't part of their system, but God made it happen. And in the book of Judges, we keep moving through the Old Testament and we find that God looked around all of the Israelite population and chose Deborah. Deborah to be one of the legal and spiritual leaders of the people of Israel. For a time, she was the leader of the people of Israel. And she wouldn't be the last one in the Old Testament who would play this important prophetic spiritual role for the nation. There were other prophets that came along like Huldah, and there were women like Jael and Naomi and Esther and their faithfulness and their inclusion in God's purposes. Those were held up as models for the people to follow. And God's radically inclusive vision for involving women in God's purposes, all it did was gain momentum when Jesus showed up on the scene. You see, in Jesus's orbit, in Jesus's circle of influence, gender was not a barrier to entry. It was not a barrier to inclusion. Jesus was born into a society that marginalized women. They were ineligible to testify in legal proceedings, even to testify on their own behalf. Women were excluded from access to education, both religious education and secular education that the men and the boys in their culture benefited from. But Jesus shocked everybody because he went out of his way to radically include the women. John chapter four, Jesus and his band of followers are traveling and they make a shortcut through what could be described as rival territory, enemy territory. They go through the nation of, or the area of Samaria and the disciples leave Jesus out on the outskirts of town by a water well so they can go into town and buy food. And while Jesus is sitting there, he initiates a spiritual conversation with a woman from that village, not just a woman, a Samaritan woman. And John says, John chapter four says that when Jesus's disciples returned from going to get food, they were astonished because they did not expect to walk up and see Jesus talking to a woman. But that woman in the next hour or two, she became the very first Christian evangelist because she left her water jar 
left her belongings and ran into town as quick as she could to tell all of her neighbors that she thought she'd discovered the Messiah. She became the very first person to publicly declare the good news of Jesus. And John says that many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Because they heard it from her. And then there's Luke. And the entire book of Luke seems to keep coming back and giving particular attention to Jesus' care for people that are on the margins of society. You think about people like Zacchaeus, this ostracized tax collector in his community who Jesus showed up on his doorstep and said, I'm having lunch with you today. And then Jesus loved him and valued him and vouched for him and included him and invited him and suddenly everybody else in town saw Zacchaeus differently because Jesus cared for the people on the margins. And Luke tells us about Jesus doing the same thing over and over again with women who were on the margins of that society. Luke chapter eight says that Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 disciples were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. That means that Jesus is traveling with an entourage of people that's not just made up of the 12 male disciples whose names we heard when we were studying these texts as children. That means that he was also being followed and traveling with Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Think about how profound that was. Herod was a pagan Gentile puppet king that had been installed by the Romans to make sure that no uprisings happened among the Jews. He didn't care about their faith at all. And yet the manager of his house, the, the man that's in charge of all of his possessions and his servants, that guy's wife is traveling around with Jesus. And then there's Susanna. And it says many others Many others whose names we just don't get to know yet, but these women, it says, were helping to support them, helping to bankroll the ministry of Jesus out of their own means. And so not only was Jesus involving women in his healing ministry, but he was inviting women to travel in his group of disciples. And these women were financially supporting his ministry and they were part of his entourage and they were included in ways that no other rabbi was including women in this ministry. And then we get to Luke chapter 10 and Jesus and the entire entourage show up in the town of Bethany and they're visiting these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And the expectation, the cultural, social expectation on these two women would have been that they would have been busying themselves with domestic responsibilities to care for their guests. But Mary saw an opportunity to listen at the feet of the Lord. Her sister got mad at her and told her, get back in here and help me. And Jesus said, no, she gets to be here with me. She gets to be my disciple too. And when Jesus was arrested and when Jesus was crucified, all four of the gospel writers tell us that most of the male disciples who had been following Jesus up to that time abandoned him. In his moment of suffering, in his moment of need, they were gone. Many of them betrayed him. They acted like they didn't know him. They, made, they put a lot of distance between themselves and Jesus. But the women were there. The women were there. 
Even in the moment Jesus died, Mark says, some women were watching from a distance and among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome, another woman. Verse 41 says, in Galilee, these women, now Galilee is 90 miles north of there and they ain't got no cars to ride on. These people have walked this whole distance. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs and many other women, many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So it's no surprise. It's no surprise that it was the women who visited the tomb first on that Easter Sunday morning. It's no surprise that on Friday night after he died, the women went about the business of preparing the spices and the oils that they would use to anoint his body. And they waited through the Sabbath and then they got up as early as light would allow on Sunday morning so that they could make their way to the garden and to the tomb. And when they got there, they found the stone rolled away and they found that the grave was empty. And the male disciples, all the men, were reportedly hiding because of their fear of the Jewish leaders. But there's the women going to the tomb there's the women showing up to anoint the body of the Lord. And in one of the most profound endorsements of the spiritual status of women that's ever happened, Jesus appeared first to the women. He could have gone anywhere, could have shown up anywhere he wanted to, could have ducked away through the garden and gone and made his way to where Peter and Andrew and James and John and all of them were hiding out. Could have gone anywhere, but he appeared first to the women. And not only that, he gave him a job. He gave him a job. He said, you get to be the first evangelist to tell the Easter story. Go and tell my friends what you've seen. And so the women got to share the good news of Easter. They were the first gospel preachers to ever tell what Jesus has done for us. And throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus didn't limit, didn't restrict women because of their gender or their marital status. Jesus treated women as part of his target audience. He treated them as equal to men. And then you go further into the New Testament, past the stories of Jesus's life and ministry, and you look at the stories in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts just contains the first few years of history of the church. It's kind of the highlight reel and some of the big major points, you know, that they wanted us to know about. And in the book of Acts, we find women playing this increasingly prominent role in the life of the church. And the male apostles were helping pave the way to make that possible. We look at Acts chapter one. And in the moment when the apostles gathered to decide who among us, who, who among our larger group can join us as a 12th apostle to replace Judas, the women were there. Mary was there. The women were there, part of all of that. They were there in that upper room. They were there as they were, as they were experiencing this waiting period and wondering what was gonna happen next. They worshiped together as Jesus ascended into the heavens. They were there. And then, not too long after that, they were all there. The women were there when the Holy Spirit came and rushed into their room like a blowing wind. And it says the women were there when the Holy Spirit lighted on each one of these people what looked like a tongue of fire. I can only imagine what that must have looked like. And the women were there when they all received this gift of the Spirit and started to speak in languages that they didn't know, speaking the words of the story of the gospel. 
And when they started to receive ridicule and questioning for that and people who had gathered from far and wide for a festival, a religious festival in Jerusalem at that time, started to ridicule them and say, ah, they sound like they've been drinking too much. Peter stood up and delivered one of the most important sermons in the history of the church. And he explained what was happening. He explained this spiritual manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And then he did it by quoting a passage from the prophet Joel, where God said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy, which means they will speak for me. This is a pivotal moment in the history of the church. A moment when the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised was going to show up, showed up to be a companion for everybody who trusts in Jesus' name. And the Spirit did not discriminate between men and women. The Spirit came to rest on all the disciples, male and female, and the crowds that gathered in Jerusalem that day heard the good news of Jesus preached in their native tongues by men and women alike. And we could go on and on, and I could tell you more stories. And we could point to the teaching ministry of women like Priscilla. We don't know a lot of detail. We could point to the conversion of Lydia and how immediately after she became a believer, she went and preached the good news to her entire extended family so that they would become believers too. We could talk about the prophetic ministry of the four daughters of Philip in Acts chapter 9 who were specially gifted to speak on behalf of God. We could dig into the letters of Peter. Peter, the one who was there for most of the highlight reel of Jesus' ministry. Peter. You know Peter. We could dig into his letters. The one who said, each of you, every one of you, all of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others. He doesn't say, you men. He says, all of you, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And, and, and we could look at the letters of Paul. And, and Paul gave thanks over and over and over for the irreplaceable, invaluable support and partnership that he enjoyed with female co-workers in the gospel. Women like Euodia and Syntyche and Tryphena and Tryphosa. I wish we knew more of their stories, but their names are preserved for us. He mentioned Paul gave thanks for deaconesses like Phoebe and female apostles like Junia, who were invaluable in his efforts to take the message of Jesus across the Roman Empire. Paul encouraged men and women, and I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here. Paul encouraged men and women to practice their spiritual gifts of prayer and prophecy when they were gathered together. And he encouraged them and instructed them on how to do that in an orderly way so that the entire church would benefit from their ministry. In fact, when we consider the, the God's elevation of women in the Old Testament and Jesus's inclusion of women in the Gospels and the vital involvement of women in the founding of the early church and the spiritual contributions of women to the church's worship and the missionary ministry of women in the ancient world. 
it seems to make perfect sense that Paul would end up writing a sentence like he did in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he said, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It makes perfect sense that Paul would write that sentence because unlike the culture that was surrounding them, the scripture describes women as being full participants in the life of the early church in Jerusalem. It makes perfect sense that Paul would write this sentence because this is what the people of God saw their Savior do. It makes perfect sense that Paul would look at this world that is so divided by race between Jews and Gentiles, black and white, and so many other divisions that exist. And Paul would look at that ugly set of divisions and say, that's, that's not part of Jesus. Because Paul knew, Paul knew that he had seen Jesus show the same acceptance and inclusion to a Samaritan woman and a garrison demoniac and dozens, if not hundreds of other people who were from a different race than he was. And so Paul knew that my savior doesn't distinguish people based on race. My savior doesn't prefer people based on one race or another. So there can't be any Jew or Gentile in the kingdom of God, we're all one. And he had seen as Gentiles had been equally gifted with the Holy Spirit of God. And he knew that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit loved the Gentiles as much as he loved the Jews. And it makes perfect sense that Paul would write this sentence and say, there is neither slave nor free because Paul had witnessed and the early church had witnessed as their savior had set the example for ignoring social class distinctions. Jesus was the one who taught them to reach out to the people who were on the margins. God was the one who had created the laws to make sure the people with no social capital or status had a path forward and had a future. It was Jesus who had shown them the way to care for the poor and the ostracized like Zacchaeus. It was the Holy Spirit who had shown up and provided the same gift of spiritual indwelling to slaves and to masters in the early church at the same time. And so it makes perfect sense that Paul would look at the work of God and say, there can't be any way that my God distinguishes between social classes. There can't be any way that my God prefers one social class over another because I've seen different. And it makes perfect sense that Paul would write this sentence and say, there can't be any male or female in the kingdom of God. That's a distinction because I've seen different. I've seen God be, go, go to great lengths to elevate the status of women like Miriam and Deborah and Esther and Naomi. I've seen Jesus go to great lengths to reach out to the women who were on the margins like Salome and Mary Magdalene and Joanna. I have seen Jesus go to great lengths to empower these women for ministry in his 
program of restoring the world. I have seen the Holy Spirit be poured out on women just the same way that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on men. And so it makes perfect sense that Paul would say there is neither male nor female in the kingdom of God because we're all one in Christ Jesus. This is the culmination, the crescendo of what God's been doing all this time that the momentum has been building so that it could be restored to what it was designed to be in the beginning where there's no hierarchy between us. It makes sense that Paul would write that. And then it's a little confusing that he would write 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. And we got to ask ourselves, how are we going to read those? What are we supposed to do with those? Because those passages are in there. Women should be silent and submissive in the churches. Those passages are there. And we got to figure out how we're going to read them and how we're going to try to be as faithful to this text as we know how to be. But I tell you what we're going to do as a church. It's what we do in every other interpretive case is we're going to try to use Jesus as our lens to discern the rest of the scripture. We're going to try to ask ourselves, where's the Jesus in 1 Corinthians 14? We're going to try to ask ourselves, where's the Jesus in 1 Timothy 2? What is God up to here? And we're going to take the principles that we know and the example that we know and the teaching that we know from Jesus, and we're going to apply it, and we're going to ask ourselves, what, is Paul in, what would Paul have said to us? Would he have said this exact same thing? I hope you're going to come back next week, because next week we'll dive into those two passages, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, in depth, and we'll wrestle with the difficulty of those passages. But I need you to know that Galatians 3.28 that same verse we had up on the screen just a second ago. There is no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. Our spiritual stories depend on that being true. I don't think there's any Jewish people in here today. I know there's a lot of people from different classes and different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different genders there's a lot of diversity in here, but if the gospel's true, if the gospel's true, then we're here because that verse is true. Because in Christ, the world and its brokenness is being restored and the divisions and the hierarchies that exist between us are being repaired. If the gospel's true, and if we have any authority to preach it, and Ephesians 28, 3.28 is true as well. And so I hope you'll come back because this is a really important conversation. It's an, it's, and it's an important part of the gospel of Jesus.